welcome to Reductio Adventures and Ideas. I'm your host, Andrew Lavin. Reductio is a show about philosophy, about ideas, and about understanding ourselves and our world more clearly. Brought to you by Inverted Spectrum Media. Hey, y'all. I haven't been producing as much, and I'm sorry for that, but, uh, you know, toddler life and pandemic life and owning a new home life and all sorts of stuff uh, definitely leave less time to uh, produce the podcast, and so I'm kind of on a, on a hiatus at the moment. Um, I'm, I'm trying to still produce some stuff here and there, but, um, but I'm not finding as much time to produce, uh, especially the highly produced stuff that I had been producing. I hope to get back to it someday, but the uh, future's a little uncertain. So um, enjoy this in the meantime, and I really appreciate your support. This time I spoke to the creator of Carneades, the uh, YouTube channel, which is an introductory philosophy channel. Uh, He just released a book called Are All Lives Equal?, and um, link in the show notes to the book. And, and I hope you enjoy that conversation. I think it was really uh, in, instructive. And um, I, f- I feel like I learned a lot. And um, I think we were, we were able to really have a, an interesting and in-depth conversation about how economics relates to philosophy and, and how both of those relate to sort of real-world cost-benefit analysis and in the NGO and government policy and institutional world. So enjoy. So we're talking with Carneades, uh, who goes by a pseudonym because of his professional work, um, but uh, he runs a YouTube channel. So uh, why don't we just start by you telling us a little bit about your your work um, sure. as as Carneades, and then also who was Carneades and what made you choose that name? Sure. No, that's a that's a great question. Um, so yeah, in my in my professional life, I work in international development, but uh, in my online life, I uh, work to create YouTube videos that help people learn about philosophy, philosophical ideas, questioning their own beliefs, and exploring this kind of idea of philosophical skepticism. Um, Carneades himself, uh, the original Carneades, was an ancient philosophical skeptic. Um, he was a leader of Plato's Academy. Uh, he's sometimes considered the last great scholar of Plato's Academy. Um, I was playing around when I was starting the channel with different names for the potential channel, and I was reading a lot about ancient skepticism. Um, and I read a specific story about Carneades that was really striking to me. Supposedly, he and a, a couple other scholars from Athens went uh, to Rome as uh, essentially as an embassy to uh, put forward a petition from Athens to the Roman Senate. Um, and on the first day, Carneades argued very persuasively for a traditional Platonic conception of justice. He put forward all these arguments in favor of that. But then on the second day, he came back and completely debunked his own arguments and argued against them, argued the other side of it, argued about the flaws in those arguments from kind of a traditional philosophical skeptical position of saying that there are some challenges on both sides. Maybe we can weigh this and end up at kind of an ataraxia. And this display so disturbed the Roman Senate, and particularly Cato, that they immediately granted the Athenian petition and kicked them out of Rome, sent them on their way, and said, we, we have to get rid of these, these dangers uh, to that might corrupt the minds of the Roman youth with critical thinking and clever arguments. Um, and so I, I think I was particularly struck by the idea of skepticism, but also that idea of skepticism not merely kind of 
as a philosophical position, but as a means of examining arguments and positions from a more objective standpoint uh, and searching for kind of good arguments for and against given positions to kind of give a fair treatment there. So I like it both, both in the sense of actually being a philosophical position, but also as a way to learn about and consider other ideas in philosophy. Yeah, cool. Nice. And it's uh, how how politically dangerous it can be <laughs> to uh, be be uh, openly skeptical mm-hmm. of ideas. Yeah, cool. Um, so um, you so you have this YouTube channel that mm-hmm. is mostly sort of introductory explanatory yeah. videos about philosophy. Um, what's your favorite uh, video to recommend as a, a gateway for listeners? For sure. Um, so d- depending on folks' level, I'll recommend a couple. Um, one one that I really like, the, the Map of Philosophy, I think, is one that has gotten a lot of traction and people really love, that tries to go through and encompass all the things that could possibly be in philosophy. And I think it's a good starting point for people that are really new to philosophy and don't really know like what fits under the heading of philosophy and where they can go with that. So I like that one. Um, if you're starting in logic, I have a big series, The 100 Days of Logic, that's short 90-second videos on all these concepts in logic um, that people really love. Uh, for people that are a little more experienced in philosophy, I'll recommend a couple series that we put out um, a bit ago. I have a series on postmodernism that I think I was I was really proud of because it doesn't just look at the philosophical idea of postmodernism. It looks at uh, artistic movements that are coined as postmodern, as well as movements in science and politics that are adjacent to philosophical postmodernism and might have some of those threads going through. Um, And finally, the last one, but a series that's close to my heart, uh, because I've lived many years in Africa, is I have one on analyzing African philosophy. For anyone out there that's looking for some kind of non-Western philosophical perspectives, I think it it gives a, a pretty good treatment of some of those ideas that you may not have encountered if your your whole focus is on kind of traditional Western philosophy. So Awesome. Yeah, we did a um, an episode on uh, Ubuntu mm-hmm. ethics, and so that um, might be a, a good tie-in there. Oh yeah, no, we we, um, we we have one of the videos in that series is on Ubuntu, and it's it's fascinating, and I I think can can help you look at, at problems in different ways than than people might otherwise do. So, right, yeah, I teach a a, a paper when I teach environmental ethics on. Um, on Ubuntu uh, ethics and GMOs in Africa, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a pretty cool paper. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, good. So uh, w- the reason we're talking today is mostly because you um, j- just released this book. Mm-hmm. And um, so why don't you give us just kind of the elevator pitch of, of the book? Uh, the book is called Are All Lives Equal? And then the, the subtitle is Why Cost-Benefit Analysis Values Rich Lives More and How Philosophy Can Fix It. Um, and the, the author is listed as Carneades. Um, and so, yeah, tell us like kind of what's the the quick elevator pitch version of, of the sure. Book. So, so the the simple story is that economists just think that some lives are worth hundreds of times more than others, and they don't just think this. Policy decisions of governments and multilateral organizations are being based on these calculations, and we need philosophy or some discipline that can talk about ethics to step in and fix it because economists are kind of averse to even talking about or thinking about some of these moral or ethical questions. Economists are really trying to operationalize kind of a a bit of a utilitarian calculus, but they fail to appreciate some of the 
ethical implications of some of the choices that they're making, particularly valuing people's preferences based on how much money they have, not necessarily on moral worth. Uh, the book proposes a solution to this problem that would kind of just require a minor change to the economic methodology, but it would resolve some of these deep ethical challenges. Uh, the book goes through, we have lots of thought experiments in it and some fun illustrations and diagrams that kind of try to make the, the content engaging and, and easily accessible for anyone. So that that's the hopefully not too long pitch. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's perfect. Yeah, so um, the book starts with the story of um, Lawrence Summers, who's an economist who um, uh, basically wrote this letter that's just shocking. You have the letter in the appendix yeah. of the book, and uh, it's it's shocking to read. So, um, yeah, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that that story. It's a kind of introduction to the the book. Sure. Yeah. So uh, Summers was the chief economist of the World Bank at the time, and he sent out a memo claiming essentially that the policies of the bank implied that we should dump toxic waste on the shores of the poorest countries in the world. We should take all of our toxic waste and we should put it, find the poorest people in the world, give them all the nuclear waste, give them all the toxic waste. Um, with the idea that they have the least lowest willingness to pay for their health. And so they are the ones who benefit uh, or, or who, who who bear the least cost by suffering from toxic waste be around them. Now, at, at one point, uh, Larry Summers claimed that this was supposed to be a sarcastic critique of the bank's policies. At another point, he claimed that he didn't actually write it. He only signed it. Either way, the problem isn't that Larry Summers is a bad person. The problem is that the memo is accurate to what the principles of economics imply. It is what, if if you look at the underlying ideas of economics and follow them to their conclusion, the conclusion is we should be dumping toxic waste on the shores of the least developed countries. And that's an ethical problem, not necessarily because Larry Summers is a bad person, but because economics has some basic assumptions that when you follow them to their logical conclusion end you with these really concerning uh, questions about how you should base policy based on who's the least willing to pay for kind of a reduction in mortality risk. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So I, I mean, I've kind of long been deeply skeptical of economics as a as a discipline, to be <laughs> honest, and uh, you know, there's there's clearly very different economists and um, they're doing very different kinds of work mm -hmm. with different assumptions and stuff. But I'm you know pretty uh, skeptical of the whole kind of neoliberal project of mainstream uh, Western econ economics. Um, and so I so let me kind of put on my jerk jerk hat for a second <laughs> so I can play kind of devil's advocate and just say like does this need a whole book mm -hmm. um what what's just like is isn't it sort of obvious that just economists have adopted some really evil uh assumptions and then the solution is just sort of uh simple you know it's just like the economists are just clearly wrong and we need um some relatively naive philosophy to just say like, yeah, that's wrong. And here's um, something more right. <laughs> good. So good question. So I, I'd say to, to a little bit of, of that, uh, what one side of it is that the economists are wrong, but 
this is a broad mainstream economic theory that isn't just being kind of talked about in the the high levels of academic economics. This is something that is being applied in real policy situations. This is something that is out there. I mean, I like I said, I've worked for the World Bank. I've worked for the Gates Foundation. I've worked for a number of U.S international development agencies. And these are agencies and organizations that are using the assumptions and are using these theories to try to implement these things. And so it's not as much trying to pull economics away from its foundations, but to expose the fact that some of these assumptions are wrong. And a lot of these assumptions are, they're not even questioned in some economic spheres. They say, oh, that's, that's what we always do. It's not our job to question whether this is right or wrong. It's just our job to kind of summarize the data and put it together. And they don't perhaps take into account the fact that there are ethical implications here. But there's another uh, tract of this to kind of the question of can't we just come up with a naive philosophical solution to this? A lot of philosophers have come with a very basic understanding of economics to say, let's just throw this whole system out the window. Let's get rid of cost-benefit analysis. Let's toss it out. It's clearly broken. There, I, I have a, a number of times in the book, I think I say that there are some philosophers who would be happy if the economics department just burned to the ground and it probably would be a moral good <laughs> in the world anyway. Um, and I think the challenge there is that economists are really trying to do something real with these analyses. They are trying to help governments to understand what is the best thing for them to do in a certain situation. They're trying to operationalize a kind of utilitarian or consequentialist calculus. And they're so they're trying to do something that I think philosophers, or at least some philosophers, really want us to do out there of saying, what are all the good things? What are all the bad things that will come of this policy? Add them up together and see which policy has the most good and the least bad, which seems very intuitive. The problem and so many philosophers that have come to this problem say, eh, throw out the whole process, get rid of cost-benefit analysis, get rid of all of it, it's all tainted, it's all problematic. And what I do in the book is I say, there, there are costs to doing that too. Throwing out all of that can lead to bias, it can lead to people making decisions not based on data and not based on understanding, but just based on their own personal perceptions. And so what I'm arguing for mm -hmm. is saying, keep economics and keep cost-benefit analysis, but find mm -hmm. a way to do it in a methodology that isn't going to give rise to these horribly unethical conclusions. Find a way to do it that is in line with these philosophers' concerns that doesn't kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. Okay. So um, I, I'm, I'm developing a sort of analogy in my mind <laughs> where um, you, you might think there's something deeply broken about um, uh, pricing and... Um, like monetary systems mm -hmm. in that they don't take into account the real costs like the environmental um, costs and um, human impacts of, uh, you know, products like um, raw material um, mm -hmm. uh, extraction and mining and um, carbon and all those kinds of things. And so um, one one solution would be like, yeah, I mean, the you know, money is inherently evil uh, because it uh, you know alienates us from like the real things that we're doing with real products in the in the real world and real raw materials and uh, real human lives and all that. Um, and so we just need to get rid of that, or we just need to get rid of the market system, which decides how much things cost. Um, and then a, a sort of analogous um, thing to what you're doing is saying, no, no, we don't need to get rid of money entirely. We just need to incorporate things like environmental costs and real costs 
into the the costs of products by you know levying um, taxes and sur- um, and uh, subsidies and and things to to shift the um, the prices of of products in different ways. Yeah, I I would say it's definitely in that vein of kind of trying to find a middle path between kind of saying throw out everything and do that. I I think the focus of the book is really on this narrow question of measurement, of how do we measure what people want and what people prefer? Because right now, economists are – the measurements that they use give preference to the preferences of the rich and the wealthy, and they – completely discount the preferences of people with less, whether that's in the value of life or in other calculations. And so as as much as this may imply broader conclusions about what policies should be implemented, the book is really focused on how do we measure what benefits someone gets from a policy and how can we divorce that benefit from how much money that person has and say, you're going to get benefit and we're going to count your benefits the same, regardless of if you're a millionaire or if you're living in abject poverty. Okay. I, that actually helps me understand the project a little bit better. So um, the the issue isn't so much... Um, or, so I, or let me let me frame the issue uh, in my own words and, and, and tell me if I'm getting this right. So uh, one of the benefits of markets is that they help us figure out or they, they help us um, set values on things and and get goods in the hands of people who want them the most. Um, and um, they help the you know, the prices help determine what is the value in and value we mean in terms of like how many people how much do people want that thing and and prefer that thing um or or that good or or service or whatever and so the market one of the goods of markets is that it allows you to figure out how much do people want something and then get that thing into the hands of the people who want it the most. And then the people who don't care about it, just um, it, it, it doesn't affect them. And so there, there isn't mm-hmm. like, you know, it's not like everyone is getting um, a makeup kit, even though not everyone wants makeup or wears makeup. Right. Exactly. It's like, no, if you want if you want makeup, you're going to spend money on makeup and um, the market is going to determine how valuable that is and, and who gets makeup and um, how much uh, they're going to have to spend on it. Um, mm-hmm. And then those of us who don't wear makeup, then it, you know it doesn't really negatively affect our lives in any way, and we don't end up with a makeup kit we don't want and stuff. So that's one of the efficiencies of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, but then one of the problems is that people have radically different um, amounts of wealth and uh, income, and so it starts to seem like some people want things a lot more than other uh, people. Um, even though that's just an artifact of the of wealth inequality and not um, something actually about their preferences. Exactly. And no, no, that, that that's exactly right. And to a certain degree, when it comes to government policies that are deciding between are we going to give uh, this group of people makeup kits or that group of people makeup kits, it's important to not be assessing should we be just giving this group of people makeup kits because they have a bunch of money or should we be giving this other group of people, maybe they don't have makeup kits, but maybe they actually want it more. And right now the way economists are measuring how much you want something from a government perspective is the same way as they're measuring it in the private sector. How much money do you have to pay for it? And for a government that's giving out a a social subsidy or, or something like that, they're not actually getting paid for that 
but they want to assess who wants this more. And when you're assessing that preference, you don't want to be including wealth or income in that. You want to be including actual need. And when that comes down to something that everyone wants, like not dying or a, a lack of uh, a mortality risk, um, it becomes even more important because everyone's going to pay something for uh, lowering their chance of death. And the wealthy are certainly going to pay more for that. But does that mean they really want it more or get more benefit from it? I don't think so. Good. Okay. Excellent. So that, yeah, that highlights the the sort of central um, kind of tension in, in the project um, more clearly for me. So um, maybe you could tell us a kind of uh, origin story of how um, how did economists go so wrong and started thinking about um, this way? Like, where where did this uh, begin? Even like conceptually speaking, like where where is the the original sin? <laughs> sure, for sure. So economists, like I said, they're really trying to operationalize this idea that comes from philosophy. I say consequentialism and utilitarianism are live and well in economics departments. Um, they are they are going on this idea. Uh, the basis of cost-benefit analysis is based in the idea we're going to add up all the happiness and add up all the pain that a particular policy causes, and we're going to see which policies cause the most happiness and the least pain, um, because that's a, a way for when we're not just making decisions as an individual, but we're making decisions as a government, it's a good way to figure out what's the best policy to move forward with. Um, but what they ran into is they run into a problem because not some costs and benefits are easy to compare. If this policy costs this person $2 but gives another person $2, you can measure that all in the same amount. But there are some concepts that are really hard to measure. Um, like what about a policy that uh, reduces pollution and so uh, saves a number of lives because fewer people are dying from uh, lung cancer? Or it improves the environmental quality. How do you value those kinds of benefits because those seem to be important to people, but they're not as easy to categorize as just giving or receiving money to someone. Um, and so economists go through this process where they try to uh, quantify everything down into a single units. And being economists, what they use is the units of money. And so they quantify everything into dollars and cents of, okay, if you save a life on average, that's $7 million of benefits. If you, on average, create enough risk of death that one person would die, that's $7 million of costs, et cetera, et cetera. And they do this for all of these different kinds of costs and benefits. And there's a strong argument for putting those into the calculations because a lot of these policies that are regulating uh, a lot of companies wouldn't have any benefits if we didn't count the lives that are saved or the environment that's being helped. But there's a question of how are we doing that? What's the process for figuring out how much a life is worth? And one of the problems is that when we do that process, we are basing it on how much people are willing to pay to get a reduction in mortality risk. And some people are more willing to pay because they have more. Willingness to pay is bound by your ability to pay. And so the rich person is going to be willing to pay more than the poor person. And so the with the policymakers choosing between two policies, we say, oh, this one creates all this more economic benefit. It's not really creating it more economic benefit in the world. It's creating more economic preference benefit for those people um, who are wealthier. And so we need some way to pull out and not be counting in dollars and cents, but be counting in something that looks more like preferences so we can uh, average out some of those concerns for uh, individuals poor versus wealthy. 
Okay, cool. Yeah, that that makes sense. Good. Yeah, it's like it's like we have this thing that we're actually trying to track, like preference, mm-hmm. you know, preference points. Yeah. And then um, we've been using uh, money as a sort of um, sur- uh, stand-in for preference, exactly preference points or something, and it's not working because of primarily because of, of wealth inequality. Exactly, a hundred percent. It it doesn't fit. The thing that we're actually measuring and the thing that we are trying to measure are getting split up because of large wealth inequality and the ability of the wealthy to uh, skew the market and want to pay more um, and appear to value something more, even when maybe they're not getting that much real value from it. Exactly. Good. Okay, cool. Um, so I love emphasizing thought experiments and you love <laughs> emphasizing thought experiments clearly from the way your book is set up. Like there's a list of thought experiments in the beginning and, and stuff. So um, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to choose a couple of your favorite um, thought experiments and just kind of walk us through the thought experiment and um, just kind of tell us the context of what, you know, what does that thought experiment do in, in the book? Like where, where does it lead the argument? Perfect. Um, so yeah, I'll just kind of let you do that. No, I, I definitely, I, I love thought experiments as well. I think we have over 40 in the book that try to pull out some of these concepts and make them more real to people and, and help, help people engage with them a little bit more. Um, so being a philosopher, I'll start with the trolley problem. Um, <laughs> so in the book, one of the questions that we look at, I mean, the central question of the book is, are all lives equal? One of the questions we look at is, would the, are there any factors that would influence your decisions to save one person's life over another person's life? Are there some ethically relevant factors that would lead us to make that decision? One of the arguments in the book is that wealth isn't one of those. Income isn't one of those. You shouldn't consider how much money someone has when you're saying we should save this rich person and not this poor person. But are there some factors that are legitimate to consider, or should we just count everyone as equal? Um, and so the the thought experiment that I do to kind of tease this out is a, a trolley experiment. So imagine that you're the commander of a SWAT team, uh, and you're trying to stop three runaway trolley tracks. So there's two tracks. There's a person stuck on either track. On the north track, we have two trolleys, one that's about 20 minutes behind the other. And on the south track, there's just one trolley, and all three of these trolleys are speeding towards these people. Now, as a SWAT team, you unfortunately only have one rocket launcher to destroy only one of these trolleys. If you destroy a trolley, it will get completely obliterated and the next trolley behind it will come barging through. And so the question is, the the front trolleys will kill those people right at the same time. If you destroy the leading north trolley, you'll save that person for 20 minutes until the second trolley on that track shows up. Or if you destroy the only south trolley, you'll save that person for the rest of their life. Which trolley should you destroy? Now, if we think that all lives are perfectly equal and the amount of life that you would live afterward doesn't matter, then we would say, oh, it, it doesn't matter between destroying that, that first North trolley and destroying the South trolley, because if it's 20 minutes or, or 20 years, it doesn't matter. But most people's intuition, I think, is that, in fact, there is a difference there, that saving the life of the person Uh, who will live the rest of their life is more meaningful and is more important than saving the life of the person who would only have 20 minutes to live. Um, You might compare this to a a more reasonable example might be a a transplant board um, deciding who to give an organ to. Do you give it uh, to someone that's 20 years old and has the rest of their life to live? Or do you give it to someone who's 90 and probably has other organ conditions and uh, will, will die in six months regardless of if you give them that organ? Um, And so it seems like there are at least some criteria that we use to determine 
if we should uh, value a particular life or how much we should value a life. The question is which of those criteria are valid and which of those criteria um, are concerning and problematic. And so that, that that was one of the that's one of the experiments. I can I can do a couple more, but I don't know if you have any thoughts or responses to that one. So um, yeah, good. So that is um, these kind of triage cases uh, make uh, bring into sharp relief um, the idea that at at the end of the day we do at least have intuitions about um, how to value lives differently, and there there's a. There's an idea that like maybe there is something wrong about that. Like the triage case is not something that should. Um, so I think this is kind of like Bernard Williams make makes a kind of some similar point where it's like the the lifeboat cases where you're deciding who gets to be in the lifeboat and who who doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, those those aren't like the the things that um, the those aren't the scenarios that should determine normal ethics. Um, those are like these these kind of um, uh, edge cases. rare, you know, luckily rare, yeah, mm -hmm. edge, edge cases that, um, shouldn't be like, um, how normal philosophical or normal ethical theory gets determined. Instead, it's just like, um, those are interesting things to think about and the kind of maybe downstream issues from what, how ethics should look in, in the normal cases. It, um, it's, it's yeah. interesting you say that because I think, one of the one of the challenges with the book, and one of the things that I think I, I push against the philosophy side of this a little bit, because um, the, the the book tries to kind of bring economics and philosophy into conversation, kicking and screaming, um, <laughs> and one one of the challenges with the philosophy side is I do think that many people that are making public policy are making policies that do 100% determine who lives and who dies. Not not in terms mm -hmm. of individuals, but in terms of large populations and risk assessments, it matters. Where you set the speed limit is going to kill people and it's going to save lives. Mm -hmm. Regardless, if you, if you set it at one mile an hour, you'll save a lot of lives. But if you're a policymaker deciding, do I set it at 25 or 30? That decision will kill people and it will save some lives. Mm -hmm. And so that that I think that a lot of these policy decisions and these decisions that economists are are dealing with end up being some of those really weighty, maybe edge cases in most people's daily lives. But for a government, those are kind of a to a certain degree bread and butter. The the decisions you make do mm -hmm. impact in a big way. Um so I, I, I can go on with a couple other thought experiments, um, if that's okay. Uh, yeah. So another one um, that I go with. So, so as I was saying, one, one of the central challenges that I'm trying to make to The Economist's case is around whether or not uh, wealth is something that's ethically relevant. Should we consider income or wealth when we are considering the impact on someone, the actual impact of a given policy? So... One example is uh, you can imagine two women, uh, Karen and Malati. They both live on islands in the Pacific. Their entire wealth is stored up in their houses. Um, every, everything they have is in their homes. Uh, and then one day a tsunami comes in the middle of the Pacific and it wipes out both their homes and it completely destroys absolutely everything they have. And you might add, the economist would ask, who, who bears the greater cost? Or we could say, who, if if we were worried about this situation, who would benefit more from a flood wall in front of their house? Would one of them benefit more or less? 
And I think most people's intuition is to say, eh, they would benefit equally. They had, everything they had was in their house. They lost absolutely everything. They would benefit equally. But the economist, of course, is going to say, let, let, let me check your wallet and check and see how much that's mattered. If Karen lives in Hawaii and Malati lives in Indonesia and Karen's house is worth $10 million and Malati's is worth maybe 10000 the economist says, it's not a question. Let there be 20, 100 Malatis. They, they don't matter. Karen's the only one that matters because that economic value is there and that economic value is different. And not even that. They're saying that Karen is losing more in a, in a preference sense, in that underlying concept sense. The economists are saying in terms of utility, Karen suffers more by losing her house than Malati does just because the market values her house more. And that to me is, I think, a really concerning conclusion. And there's a solution that I propose in the book that kind of averages out your wealth. It, it controls for wealth and it controls for income in how we're valuing preferences and utility. And it brings it down so you realize when someone loses absolutely everything, it doesn't matter how much they had to start with or how much the market valued their house, they still are experiencing that same pain or that same burden. And a government that cares about managing happiness and suffering should not be caring about how much money they're losing. They should be caring about how much pain or utility they're losing. Good. I can, so I can, I can like see the slippery slope in the economist's mind like mm -hmm. unfolding mm -hmm. um, in this thought experiment, which is, is really great because you can imagine, um, you know, I, I mean, in a really extreme example, you know, someone um, that there was a, you know, a tsunami or a hurricane the year before that wiped out everything this person owned. Mm -hmm. And so a year later, they're living in um, a, you know, a, a makeshift tent. Um, they haven't developed very much material wealth mm -hmm. um, at that point. And so they don't have that much to lose in terms of material um, wealth because they and they haven't put that much time and um and and labor into developing material wealth because it's only been a year and they haven't um you know they've just been trying to put their their life together so it's not like they have um a lot of labor put into their material possessions mm -hmm. um and then versus someone who's um, been around um in that home for 20 years and there's artwork that they've um, acquired and maybe some they've created and the, so there's a lot of labor that went into creating the material wealth around them mm -hmm. and, and so that's like a kind of um e extreme case where it's like yeah okay i can kind of see how one might be one might have lost more than the other yeah um and, and then you can kind of see yeah okay so then what if you know what one person um it, it's less extreme but it still is a, a pretty clear relief where like one person spends uh, most of their time farming and not um, developing much in the way of material wealth, mm -hmm. um, but they, you know, they they've got um, a, you know maybe a little bit of, um, of of currency or something stashed in a in a coffee pot um, somewhere. But then they like it's not like they've spent a lot of time um, painstakingly crafting their home or um, you know um, acquiring. Uh, works of art or um, you know cultural things of cultural importance or anything it's like their house is very utilitarian mm -hmm. because they're in the, the the fields all the time and that's their their life and so then it's like okay if they both lose their home and this other person has like put a lot of effort into their house and their material possessions specifically mm -hmm. um then yeah okay it almost does feel like one person has lost more and then you kind of you know keep keep uh, going um and then i can see how an economist gets into a headspace where they're like 
um, yeah, I mean, at a, at a certain point, you just have to say that some some people have lost more in those cases than others, and um, here's a framework that explains that perfectly well. Yeah, and and I do think it's interesting. One, uh, I think it's about the last objection that I cover in the book, looks at this kind of question of, isn't there a certain level to which some people are gaining money and are gaining income through meritocratic means, and people that to a certain degree, lack money or lack wealth or lack income, lack that because they are not trying, they're not working, they're not investing that. And isn't there in a certain way in which if I scrimp and I save and I save $100 or I save as much of my paycheck as I can every single week, isn't that, and I lose all of that, and someone else hasn't saved and spends all their money all the time and they lose the little amount they have in the bank account, isn't that it, it shouldn't shouldn't we consider a difference there? Um, and the case that I make is, well, a, a, a couple fold. First, I think there's a case to be made that that is not actually how wealth inequality in the world works. I think that most of wealth inequality is driven by how much your parents had or how much your family had an inheritance-based wealth. And so it's not actually I scrimped and I save and I held all this money. It's actually I inherited all this money and didn't actually work for it at all. And But I'm, my preferences are still being valued more. Um, so that's a component of it. I do think there's also a honest component of saying the economist is trying to or saying out loud that they're trying to measure preferences. They're trying to measure what people are actually suffering through these things. And someone that honestly has nothing and someone that has a lot losing some part of that is, yes, the person that built all these beautiful artworks on their house and did all of that, losing all those artworks. It's sad, but maybe they still have enough money that they're not going to starve tonight. The person that has nothing, it, it's a different order of magnitude to a certain degree. Yes, we should count the personal pain of, I spent all this money getting all of these, this beautiful priceless collection of what have yous, but also if there's someone that's not going to eat tonight or someone that is going to effectively be homeless, I, I feel that when you boil down to it, there's still a, a disconnect between what is really happening in terms of actual pain that someone's suffering. Should we really be comparing someone losing their, their beautiful collection of art with someone that is going to go hungry? It, it, it feels right. a little but, – but I agree with you. I can see where that, the economists get into that headspace where there are these clear things that we can measure and we can add them up. Good. Yeah. So I've, um, I think two thoughts. So mm -hmm. um, one, one thought is um, – you know, imagine two people who are um, like very—they're equal, right? They—they mm -hmm. um, they, they started out with like middle-class parents who with the exact same income and parents who taught them similar values or whatever, and then they just have different dispositions. Like I think my wife and I are kind of um, in this where we just have slightly different dispositions about mm -hmm. money. I tend to want to spend money, and and um, she is a saver, um, and um, so. Um, if if I'm just like spending a lot of my money and um and you know have have some nice things and whatever my wife's saving money, uh, and then something comes about, um, you know it's like uh, only only one of us can um maybe you know maybe, maybe it makes less sense when your spouse is right so <laughs> um, just imagine uh, me and my brother are this way right mm -hmm. my brother's a saver and I'm a spender and then it comes about that um, there's only one ticket to get on um, a, a plane to mm -hmm. go on a trip to Greece or something yeah. like that right 
Uh, and then, you know, the question is, who gets to go? And it's like, well, it's it's not totally unfair for my brother to get to go because I have all these nice things that I've spent money on mm-hmm. and I enjoy my things and I haven't saved and blah, 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 blah. And then my brother, he's saved money up for exactly this kind of opportunity. And so he gets to take advantage of it. Fair enough. Right. Um, but then, you know, th- things of like mortality and morbidity are just totally different mm-hmm. sorts of things, right? Where it's like the amount of money you saved up doesn't mean you you deserve to live more or you deserve to avoid um, having polluted water yeah. or whatever more. You know, it's it's like, yeah, okay, a trip to Greece is one thing, but like having clean drinking water is a completely different thing. Um, exactly. Yeah, so that's that's my, my first sort of reaction, yeah. yeah. And and I think that that when public policy institutions are making these choices, they usually aren't giving out free trips to Greece. Usually, they're focused on the questions of who has clean drinking water, who has the, these mortality risks. And I think those things make sense. And I do think, on the other side, things that are luxury goods, things that are plane tickets, and things that are artworks and that stuff probably makes more sense on a private market. It makes more sense for someone that's willing to pay a lot of money for a I don't know shredded Banksy picture is going to be the one that gets that shredded Banksy picture. I don't, I, I don't think we need to be, be giving those out to everyone or, or be valuing that in the same way. But usually for public policy institutions, they're not looking at giving away high artwork to everyone. They're looking at how can we measure these kind of deep and existential questions around who, who gets to have this slightly less risk of death or this slightly greater risk of death. Right. Yeah, that's kind of been a longstanding thought of mine is that um, markets are great for luxury goods, mm-hmm. not so great for, you know, basic goods and uh, vital, vital um, goods and, and things like that. Cool. I, I can do I'll, I'll do one more uh, thought experiment while while we're here, um, if that's OK. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so another one to give you a bit of background, I at the end of 2019, I was very close to finishing this book and being ready to to publish it and put it out there. And then coming into the beginning of 2020, uh, the pandemic, of course, happened. And there were a lot of articles that were being written on the value of a statistical life, cost-benefit analysis, and using these as tools to assess should governments shut down or not. Because it was a real question of, is there a value in having commerce, even if that creates a risk of death alongside it. And so I I took a bit of a pause with this book, in part because the pandemic was insane and everyone's life went on pause a little (laughs) bit, but also because Mm -hmm. I wanted to look at some of these questions and say, a lot of people are talking about this. I want to incorporate some of this in the book. And so there's a chapter in the book that looks at uh, your money or your life, kind of looking at COVID-19. And one of the thought experiments in there, I think, gets to a key point that there there have been so many debates about, should should we lock down, should we not lock down, particularly in the beginning of the pandemic. And the chapter kind of goes through different phases of the pandemic that we we have been in. Um, But it compares, if you imagine two diseases, you imagine rarity fever and apocalypticoccus. And I really only use this thought experiment right now because I love saying the word apocalypticoccus. I think it's hilarious. Um, (laughs) Rarity fever, it kills one in a billion people. If every single person in the world got infected with it, only one would, or or only seven would die, essentially. And apocalypticoccus, if you get it, you're essentially dead. 95% of the time, you're out. It seems that a government that shut down everything and economics and commerce and all of that for rarity fever is probably doing a moral wrong, even if they are effectively saving a life or a part of a life. 
Um, if they're India, they're saving one life. Uh, and a government that doesn't shut down for apocalyptic caucus is completely foolish because that is so deadly that it's a huge problem. And it would kill so many people that there's no amount of commerce that would make up for it. And right. the question is, how do we make decisions for diseases that are somewhere in between those extremes? If we say that at a certain point, money is worth lives. There are some lives that it, it's worth it for me to go out and buy my coffee, go to the theater, do whatever, for some diseases that are rare enough. And there are some diseases that are so dangerous that, of course, I wouldn't. Where is a, a government able to draw that line? And I think this is this speaks to the benefit of something like cost-benefit analysis and the benefit of having something that can answer those questions in a more rigorous, data-driven way of saying, where can we find the right solution in the middle? And I, I, I don't want to get into the debate of where COVID-19 was at various points in that or figure <laughs> all that out. But I do think having a tool like cost-benefit analysis that can assess a situation and say, Based on the preferences of the population, this risk is too risky and this risk is not risky enough because we think that, eh, this is a big enough deal. This isn't a big enough deal. I do think that's in some way beneficial. And so that's a, a, a thought experiment that speaks a little bit to that specific example and talking about disease because it, there, there's a lot of impacts with that and mortality risk reduction, but also to the question of are... There are some things that we are willing to risk our lives to do, and we think that a government should be willing to risk some people's lives to do. Where does any given scenario, whether it's a disease or whether it's something else, fit on that spectrum? Right. Yeah, it's it's an interesting like it, you almost have to think of it as in, in certain cases, like the government is allowing certain things to happen, mm -hmm. um, even though they're risky to human lives. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, it's kind of like a. Uh, almost like a killing versus letting die mm -hmm. um, type of distinction where it's like um, it feels important to say that like you know the government not shutting down the economy isn't risking people's lives so much as like not intervening in a risky s system or something like that mm -hmm. um, yeah so I, I don't know maybe, maybe that um, doesn't actually make that big of a difference in in the real world but it, it feels feels like there's some some kind of distinction there feels kind of important it is it is an interesting question whether that it has impact with with governments. I know I know a lot of the philosophical literature has has an importance placed on the killing versus letting die. And I do think most of this conversation around public policy is in the letting die space. It's not in the actively killing. These aren't governments that are advocating going out and specifically murdering people or or <laughs> or, or finding individuals. This is this isn't killing for hire and I think one of the frustrations economists get with philosophers is that some philosophers that critique cost-benefit analysis go down that route and economists say, we're not even, that's not even what we're talking about. We're not really talking about a government going and murdering people for hire. We're talking about a government choosing to reduce the risk of someone dying, which feels a lot more like all of the conversations are in the letting die space. I mean, even with apocalyptic caucus, that's mm -hmm. that's a government choosing to let people, it's letting a lot of people die, but it's choosing to let people die by not doing anything or not intervening. Um, right. But no, I, yeah. I do think that's an yeah. important distinction to make. Yeah, there's there's a difference between the, the CIA murdering people <laughs> and, um, you know, not shutting down an economy when a pandemic is sweeping through. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah. Okay. Good. That, so that that's a really um, 
it's a really tricky situation and it's um it kind of like the whole conversation kind of leaves me with this uneasy feeling because i'm not um disposed to be utilitarian but then when you know i I feel the strength of what you're saying and that when when you get into debates about public policy um a lot of the things that seem to make a lot of sense in um, moral philosophy aren't super helpful in like actually helping governors and uh, other executive branch individuals and legislators tr- like actually decide what policy to do and and how to enact certain policies and things. Um, so I'm like thinking of um, Frank Tarek has has this book Why Should the Numbers Count mm-hmm. I think is um, the title and uh, he makes like an argument that's very compelling I think that um, in a lot of these kind of um, lifeboat cases and cases where you have to choose between one life and five lives and things like that, uh, you should just flip a coin. It's, you know, human lives are fundamentally equivalent um, and and you can't aggregate the value of human lives. So it's mm-hmm. not, he, he rejects the idea that five lives are more important than one life and things like that. Um, and to me, I'm like very sympathetic to that idea when it comes to moral philosophy and and stuff. But then I do feel the the, the pull of what you're saying that like that that doesn't help NGOs decide where to put their efforts. Yeah. It doesn't help um, people actually um, do. Whereas something like utilitarian um, utilitarianism or consequentialism of some kind uh, and the cost benefit analysis that goes along with it. Um, actually does help people like where are we going to put our resources Mm -hmm. and how can we have the biggest benefit and stuff Um, it's not super helpful to just like reject the notion of having the biggest benefit or um, that that there's something valuable about helping the most people we can and and things like that Um, it it doesn't help us really answer the question of what to do Um, yeah so yeah that that's a it's an interesting. Thing. No, it 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 is interesting, and I think there is a a strain of uh, more deontological thinkers and philosophers that 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 push against this in some ways, and I think it has the challenge, and it's one of the reasons I for for better, but probably for worse, philosophers are often excluded from these conversations. Is I mean, I, and, and this is a a point I raised at the very end of the book. If you look at the policy departments in the biggest aid agencies and these things, there's there's no philosophers. There's there's all economists. And there, there's not even people from other disciplines. There, it is exclusively economists that have this sense of kind of groupthink around these ideas. And some of that, I think, is uh, institutional power, and it's just what people expect and people are able to, to propagate and continue that. But some of it is, I think, that philosophy sometimes has a challenge of proposing in these big situations solutions that could actually be implemented in a reasonable way or, or, or facing up to some of the realistic kind of back and forth that a decision maker, if, if you're a decision maker, you're a governor, you're a president or something, and you have to decide between two options, both of which are going to kill a lot of people or let a lot of people die – if if someone if if a news person were to see hear that you were flipping a coin between those options, they, it, I mean, not only would it be a public relations disaster, people would be concerned that there wasn't kind of some logic behind it, that there wasn't some way for you to make that decision. Because I I, I think I'm sympathetic to a lot of the positions for a personal ethics, and when you're going through your life, it's 
utilitarianism may not fit as well, but when you're a big government and you're making decisions for millions of other people, it seems like finding a way to take all those people's preferences, what they want, aggregate them together into something, whether that's through cost-benefit analysis or something else, that helps you decide as a, a tool to say, this is what most of the people want for their own lives. It, it feels like it can be useful, whereas it, it wouldn't be a useful tool in, in individual ethics. I don't want to go poll all my neighbors to decide if I'm going to, I don't know, run this red light or not. Um, <laughs> trying to think of an ethical dilemma right. you'd run into. But <laughs> I, I do think that that aggregation is particularly, is, is differently important for uh, public policy institutions and for people that are making decisions on behalf of a large population of people. Yeah, ar arguably things issues like justice and fairness come in mm -hmm. at the institutional level and they don't come in at the personal level um so like i i can't do an injustice to you i can just do mm -hmm. a wrong to you um whereas if i'm uh, the governor of california then all of a sudden i can do mm -hmm. um, injustice by enacting policies in an unfair way and and things like that yeah um and so that yeah that that seems to be part of it. It, it seems like fairness is, as you were talking, I was thinking fairness seems to be a pretty central idea of like, um, if, you know, if there's, um, two groups and, um, you know, they, they can only ship the antidote to one group or the other, and we're mm -hmm. in rural Alaska and there's only enough, um, you know, fuel to get the, the plane to one of us. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they say on the radio, like, I'm sorry, there's 50 of you and there are 51 of the other group. We just had to go with the bigger number. Then there's a sense in which I, I'm, you know, obviously disappointed and distraught about the whole thing. But I'm like, yeah, okay, I, I get it. It, it seems at least basically fair that like they have more people. And so even, even if I think um, fundamentally there's no moral difference between saving 51 and 50 people mm -hmm. um, I might I might still think but it's a basically fair heuristic and and I I accept the conclusion um, because I know that it wasn't um, it wasn't motivated by any sort of unfair motivation it's like a basically fair way to decide who gets the antidote mm -hmm. or whatever yeah and and when we have to make those decisions finding when it's when it's not just only numbers of people but it's also the race of those people and the wealth of those people and the age of those people and all of those questions that get baked in, I think it becomes really, it, it becomes important to try to have something that looks like that basic fairness that maybe it's not right. Maybe the person that has to make that decision is doing a moral wrong, no matter what they decide. But they giving them a heuristic and a tool that says this is an objective and transparent way to decide these things that we know doesn't have any bias in it, I think can be really useful because my worry is I think when people honestly make decisions in a vacuum of information, they often fall back to biases or they fall back to affinity bias. I, I, I don't know enough about these groups of people, but this group of people, they, they vote for the same, they, they like the same sports team that I like, or they, they have this. And even if I don't think that consciously, unconsciously, I might as a decision maker. And so having some of the tools that economists say of, well, this population is uh, however many people, or they, they have these other issues and this other population has this set of issues. And these are how we can quantify these. And these are how we can think about creating heuristic or a tool. 
I, I think can be hopefully helpful to alleviating some of those biases. And then if there's a bias in the process, you can look at it because the process is transparent and the process is something that's publicly out there. But yeah, right. That makes sense. I, I actually have a episode. Um, one of my kind of earlier on episodes was playing with the idea of rejecting the importance of consistency in like decision policy making and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, like, like that we always have to do it according to one set set of rules or that, you know, we don't, um, we, you know, if we make it one decision according to one set of considerations and one set of rules, um, then we have to make the next decision according to the same set of rules and things like that. And, uh, I am pretty deeply skeptical of, of that idea, but I, I can see a route where, um, you know, you, you have uh, certain uh, basic procedures that you have to follow, um, and and the outcome of the procedure might not be the same every single time. But um, as long as you're sort of following this procedure in good faith, and um, and uh, th- then then you're you're going to end up with a um, an outcome that at least approximates something like a fair outcome in each case, while um, hopefully trying to avoid as many of our own like you know personal affinity biases and Mm -hmm. um things in the process yeah that's always kind of the problem with um virtue approaches to these problems which i uh, would count myself like among the virtue um people when it comes to these kinds of issues um but one problem with them um with us i should say (laughs) is that um it's uh it's difficult to create um, a system where you truly can um, trust in the virtue of other people mm-hmm. um, and, and that like we know that we're not put together very well in terms of our, our cognitive systems and we're prone to all these biases and things um, that can um, be really problematic. And, um, you know, I think vir- virtue theorists tend to be very optimistic about the possibility of overcoming those by being aware of them and um, things like that. But um, but you still like always lurking in the background is this thought that um, you're you're inviting the possibility of racist decision making into mm-hmm. um, you know or, or sexist decision making or whatever you know ableist decision making. Um, and you're inviting that possibility in, even if you're trying to select select and train virtuous decision makers, you're still yeah. going to um, invite this possibility without some kind of procedure um, for people to follow. And, and I do think there's certainly a balance to it, right? I think that using a procedure to provide data and information, but not necessarily having that procedure be the end-all be-all, having that procedure mm-hmm. be the way that we get the information so that people mm-hmm. are making decisions not in a vacuum of information. Because I know there's a number of studies that look at the m- people are most likely to express those biases when they don't have any other information about someone or about a situation. Mm-hmm. The more information you provide them with, the more they're able to exercise those virtues and make a decision based on real information and a reasoned argument as opposed to when people are in a vacuum your brain just starts filling it with the the unconscious biases that you may have and so pairing i i i think you 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 do need good and virtuous decision makers to 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 make these things effective but that they're best paired with a transparent and data-driven system that can provide them with enough information that they can make those decisions based on facts and not based on mm-hmm. biases, even if they don't want to. So. Good. Yeah. There's almost like there's a critique of Rawls there, and there's also a way of 
implementing Rawls. And so like my, my mind is going in two separate directions. So um, I haven't done Rawls on the podcast. So, so one of the basic ideas of Rawls is um, you, um, it, when making fair decisions, um, you um, sort of remove knowledge of the decision maker about things that might bias them in one direction or another, like who they are in the system. You know, if you're going to set up the rules for um, who, uh, you know, who gets what kind of income, for instance, um, then you're you're going to remove from the decision maker any knowledge of their own race or their own, you know, other kinds of things that are, are sort of arbitrarily related to income. Um, and, and you... Um, are, are going to basically put them in this situation where they don't know um, almost anything about themselves and they could be anyone in the system that they're just, they're setting up rules for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so I can kind of imagine a, a, a situation too, where you actually give some, give the policymaker um, a, a cleansed set of data mm-hmm. about the information where you, re- you actually intentionally remove um, biasing, features like you do, you don't know the race or the country of origin or the ethnicity of the people involved yeah. you just know here's group a and here's group b here are the relevant factors about group a and group b mm-hmm. with no irrelevant factors and you don't get to know any of them you're sitting in a, a black box until you decide and then when you <laughs> come out then we'll we'll tell you what you decided but uh, yeah. you know so i can imagine a kind of rawlsian approach to that where you um, intentionally with, withhold information from the um, decision makers as part of the process. Yeah, and 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 I think that what one of the debates in the book goes around: what are those factors that are ethically relevant? What are those things mm-hmm. that you should tell someone about? Preferences feel right. ethically relevant. Does this community care more about having a hospital or a school? Right, like that. Their their preferences mm-hmm. seem relevant. The race of that community probably not relevant. And so mm-hmm. finding a way that it, as you're creating a process to do this, what do you build into that process that maybe will aggregate those preferences or put those together? And what do you purposefully exclude? You say, uh, this area donated to your reelection campaign, we're not going to include that fact for you. But right. uh, this area has uh, systemically been oppressed by the government or has been excluded from previous policies that look like that. Maybe we are going to include that. And so I do think that mm-hmm. process of saying, whether that's in an, a, a formal cost benefit analysis process or just for a decision maker at all, finding those things that are ethically relevant and creating a standard of these are the kinds of things you should be considering. These are the kinds of things that you should step behind that veil of ignorance for. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Good. Um, Awesome. So so I think we're at the point where um, it makes sense to uh, talk about your specific solution. Sure. And in order to do that, I'm going to ask just like a kind of uh, another <laughs> kind of uh, jerky devil's advocate question, which is just like, isn't this, I, I feel like when I first wrote this question, um, n- now I, th- I think it feels less like a good um, question, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it anyway, mm-hmm. so that you can <laughs> talk about your solution, which is, you know, isn't the solution obvious, you know, obviously simple that, um, People are fundamentally um, morally equal and, um, you know, we should care about their preferences the same. Mm-hmm. Now I'm kind of seeing how, okay, we, we actually do need to figure out how to deal with their preferences in a way. And so I'm just kind of going to invite you to tell us what you what your solution is. Sure. Um, so the, the solution that I propose in the book is very much 
to, to, to do exactly what we were talking about with Rawls, to try to pull out wealth and income from decisions that are based around this and to pull those out of cost-benefit analysis, to essentially control for wealth and income in a cost-benefit analysis that you're considering. So if we're counting the benefits, so we go back to our, our situation of two people who have their entire lives destroyed in a hurricane or, or in a tsunami, um, what we're not counting, we're not counting how much they had and lost, we're counting what percentage of their entire livelihood they lost. So instead of doing things in dollars and cents, we're doing things in percentages. And so if you lose everything, that's 100% loss. If you double everything that you have, that's 100% gain. Um, and I feel that this is a closer match. I, I think it achieves a lot of things, but I think at, at, at its basic level, it's a closer match to what people are really trying to capture. If I tell you that someone got a $5,000 or a $10,000 raise, you don't know from that how happy they should be. If they make a million dollars a year, they probably didn't even notice. If they make a thousand, ten thousand dollars a year, that's a huge impact to them. But if I tell you that someone's right. salary doubled, it feels like no matter where you are on the income spectrum, that has an impact. If I tell you that someone lost their income completely and completely lost their job, it feels like that is a better way to capture how people actually are feeling and the real kind of underlying master concept of preferences or utility better than just looking at money. And what this does is by controlling for wealth, it means that uh, you are able to put someone back behind that veil of ignorance about how much money a population has. And one of the cool impacts of this, so in, in the book we look at uh, a couple of papers that have been put out that do actually value statistical lives by every country in the world, essentially. And there are some that are as low as $68,000, there are some that are, uh, I don't know, $10, $12 million. Um, and when you control for income by you just divide by essentially G and I per capita, the numbers all become the same. It's all about 17%. For a, for a one in a thousand chance of risk, people would pay about 17% of their income to get rid of that. If I say either pay me, give 17% give, uh, of your income in taxes or uh, to fund this thing that's going to reduce your chance of death by one in a thousand, most people would say, yeah, that, 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 that's a fair bet. Um, and what it speaks to, I think, is it speaks to this idea that on average, our preferences about risk reduction are really the same. These huge disparate numbers that economists are capturing don't, don't really mean anything. What they're really focusing on if we pull is, is wealth. If we pull wealth and income out of it, you get these numbers that are so clearly lined up and so clearly everyone's about the same about what they would consider in terms of how much uh, a, a risk of death would impact them in the same way that losing your whole house feels like it impacts everyone equally. Doubling your salary feels like it impacts everyone equally. Um, there's a, and th th this is a little inspired by, um, there's a, a story in the book that isn't a thought experiment, it's actual real, of um, a country, I think it's Finland, that they charge uh, speeding tickets not based on a flat fee, but as a percent of your income. Um, and so if a professional basketball player gets pulled over on the side of the road, they may be paying a huge fee in terms of for speeding. And if someone that 
is barely getting by and has very little, they will be paying very little. And not only does this problem resolve things like debtor's prison and having people who are, are very poor not be uh, able to pay very low speeding tickets and very small fines and all the problems with that, it actually creates a real, uh, a, a real pressure for people who are very wealthy to follow the law because right. that uh, psychological pressure of saying, oh, I would lose a day's pay or I would lose a week's pay is the same for everyone because percentage is a better measure of how we're feeling about something than a static line of, of money. So... Yeah, I've often thought that about traffic tickets. Um, that uh, that it's it's just not illegal mm-hmm. to um, to speed for a rich person if you can just pay a fine, yeah. because it's like, okay, I speed and then it's going to cost me a penny if I get caught. Like that, that's just effectively saying it's not illegal mm-hmm. at all, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that that like just makes perfect sense to me. Um, and it, so, yeah, I like I like that solution a lot. Um, I get. Let me just sort of flag something that's coming up for me as like something that you'll find quite relevant mm-hmm. um, um, working in in the land of Ubuntu, um, <laughs> where like you know, it imag- I can imagine someone caring deeply about their community mm-hmm. and feeling like it's it's part of them to the extent that they're the good of their community is their good, even even if it involves self sacrifice mm-hmm. and things like that, right? Um, and so then, um, it's, it's just interesting to see, like, um, the same sort of analysis seems to work if you, um, don't adopt so many sort of individualistic, um, seeming kind of, Mm -hmm. uh, what some people would call like Western individualistic, um, frames of analysis where it's just like, do you want to die? You know, Mm -hmm. no, how much would you pay to not die kind of thing? Um, And it's like, you know, do you care about your community? What would you sacrifice of your own um, in order to make sure that your community is healthy and continue and has longevity and that, you know, um, all of that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Um, And as you're hinting at, it seems like the empirical truth is probably going to come out that People are willing to sacrifice. Uh, um, people who care about their community to the same degree are going to are going to be willing to sacrifice about the same um, chunk of their uh, wealth mm-hmm. um, or income um, to say save their community. And and so just just because Bill Gates is giving you know uh, millions and millions and millions away doesn't mean he cares more if it's ten percent of his income. Yeah. And um, so if someone else is willing to give ten percent of their income, then they actually care the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it, it, it actually, it seems like the, the reverse is usually true that, um, people with less are willing to give a higher percentage yeah, that, and things like that. That, that yeah. does it in at least some data that I've seen bear out people with less are willing to give a much higher percentage of their income to help people and people with more end up giving a smaller percentage. And so should we valorize and should we say this person that gave a million dollars to charity, but they had a billion dollars to begin with or the person that says i'm barely scraping by but the the last hundred dollars that i have this month that i could have spent on myself i'm going to give to a, a charity or someone that that needs help it feels like that person is doing more and and cares more about that cause than the person that's giving 0.1 percent of their wealth or one percent of their wealth away yeah especially if you think of like even if if you 
for like a fair analysis, it almost feels like, you know, um, take away um, the the basic cost of living for someone um, who is living the bare bones mm-hmm. um, amount of like, how much does it cost to um, pay for rent in a um, basically acceptable um, thing? And how much does it cost to pay for food? Like the things that you kind of have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if, yeah, if one person has $100 left over and another person has $100 million left over, <laughs> then it's even more stark if you're actually, if you take out like the basic cost of living, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. the, the percent, someone might be willing to give 100% of the the leftover yeah. um, money that they have versus someone else who will give a, a pretty minuscule percentage comparatively. For sure. Good. Yeah. Um, do you have any last thoughts? Um, no, no last thoughts. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give a plug for the book. The book's available um, on Amazon uh, in paperback form. We are working on an ebook form that hopefully will be coming out soon. Uh, so it's out there. Um, you can also check out uh, the YouTube channel, uh, carnades.org. We have uh, nearly a thousand videos um, educating people on philosophy. Um, so with, with that plug, uh, thank you so much for uh, having me on on the show. This has been this has been really fun. And, and, and it's made me think more about some of these things and how they connect with, awesome. with, with things like virtue ethics and in, in different ways and how they can be they, they can be paired together to uh, hopefully create better societies. So, yeah. Yeah, thanks for joining us. The book the book is called Are All Lives Equal? Mm-hmm. And then there's a, a subtitle, Why Cost-Benefit Analysis Values Rich Lives uh, More and How Philosophy Can Fix It. Um, it's a, it's, it's a, a fun book and a really like um, well-laid-out book. So I think that um, you can kind of easily find the section of the book that you really want to read or you can read the whole thing or you know it's it's nice um the the way you've laid it out and you, that it's a it's a really easy to kind of approach it's a, it's a very approachable text i should say good yeah. yeah i i tried to have some sections for people that don't have the economics background and want to dig into that and then you can just skip over those sections if you're like ah, i'm comfortable with this or comfortable with the philosophical background and dive into some of the arguments and thought experiments so yeah yeah, and I'll put um, I'll put a link to carnades.org and also um, the the Amazon page of the book uh, in the show notes so that people can easily just click that if that's what they want to do. Fantastic. All right, thanks so much for joining Great. us. Great, thank you so much for having me. As we said, the links are in the show notes. Thanks so much to Carnades for joining us. And um, I really invite you to check out the YouTube channel. There's a lot of really great introductory, uh, pretty entertaining stuff. Uh, pretty pretty similar to in the vein of Reductio videos on, on YouTube. It's, it's pretty great. It's a great teaching resource. I use it in my classroom, uh, especially during the pandemic. It was, it was nice to have some great uh, high quality uh, videos to assign to my students. Thanks everyone for listening and I will catch you next time. I'm Andrew Lavin, and this has been a production of Inverted Spectrum Media.